Somebody posted a comment on a recent episode of the Silent Film Music Podcast wondering why they could find episodes one through eight. At some point several years ago when I moved my podcast and blog over onto my main website, I don't know what happened in the import, but those episodes didn't come over. I have the files and what I'm going to do to make them available again for anybody who wants to hear how this all started is I will reissue them one at a time in this podcast feed. So they will be listed there, baby pictures, if you will, of the Silent Film Music podcast, making the episodes one through eight available again. That's fantastic. Greetings across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. Thanks for listening. This is episode 43, the second half of our two-part year-end wrap-up for 2021. We are recording. I'm recording with co-host and co-producer Kerr Lockhart. Hello, Kerr. Hey, Ben. So in the last episode, we talked a lot about your work as an accompanist, both uh, in person and live streaming. But one of your other hats is a home video distributor. Yes. Your big release was the Edward Everett Horton 8 Shorts. Um, yeah. That's its own story. I don't think we've co- talked about it on the podcast, how this grew from okay. five shorts to eight shorts. The Edward Everett Horton project started out as me looking for one of his silent comedies at the Library of Congress to be a possible extra on another project that is still circling the airport. And I was down at the Library of Congress, and I'm talking with Rob Stone about what's available and what, what material do you have. And while he was looking up what holdings they had, Lenan Schweighoffer, who's another film curator, happened to be walking by, and she said, oh, we have all eight of them. I said, there's eight? Initially, there were only five shorts that that were 100% complete. One of them had a little bit of decomp, but not that much, uh, meaning nitrate decomposition. There was one of them that was incomplete, as far as I knew. Actually, there was two that were incomplete, and then a third that just had a lot more nitrate decomposition in it. Well, the Kickstarter funded very quickly, and then continued and continued and continued to fund And so there was certainly money for producing more than the five shorts. And then the other material turned up. So one of the films behind the counter, we thought, well, the second half of Reel 2 is missing. I noticed as I would watch the files, there would be slugs at the heads and tails of some of the reels for tinting colors. And pretty much all the films are straight up light amber. But there's a moment at the end of what's, what we thought survived on, on Behind the Counter where Edward Everett Horton flips a light switch and there's a straight cut. But I thought, oh, I wonder if the rest of it isn't missing but is preserved separately. Does it go to amber from blue? Because the beginning of that reel is blue. So the materials would have been separated uh, at yeah. the time because of the tinting. Yeah, well, also, I knew from some emails that Steve and I had had with Richard Simonton, who had preserved the films in the early 1970s. At some point, not too long after Harold Lloyd had passed away, the prints and negatives in Nitrate 35 had come into his possession. Uh, And he saw what shape the films were in and that they were starting to go. 
he was working for the AFI at the time doing film preservation work. He had his own lab, got from the Library of Congress to fund the restorations for the AFI. And one of the things that Richard had told me and Steve was that he sourced negative and positive. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if that real too, the part that's missing is actually negative or a positive element. And George Willman went into the vaults and found the other half. And the same thing happened with the other film that we thought was incomplete. It's a film called Find the King. There were two 1,000-foot rolls, and we looked at one of them, and it has these little slugs in it, part one and part three and part six and part eight, handwritten. I remember the same thing about positive and negative, and I thought, oh, I wonder if there's an, the other roll isn't actually a print of this, but if it's parts two and four, the parts that were missing. And I sent a screen grab to Richard of those slugs. He said, that's my handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> so... Again, they went into the vaults and found the other role, and sure enough, it was an exact match. It seems so, so often in in, uh, in, in film, uh, you know, rediscovery and curation that things are simply unmarked or mismarked. The, right, the, the stuff so is that, right there. Yeah, so this is this is the thing, and we've we've turned up stuff either on purpose or by mistake because of that. And it's not out of negligence. It's very easy to say, oh, why didn't the lab do this, and why didn't the vault, the archive this or whatever. There is so much film. Mm-hmm. so much film and the number of people that are available to go through it and wind through things and see oh what's this oh this is actually this and uh, there, there, there's a there's a huge disconnect between the two things and it's easy to think that an archive is like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory anytime somebody <laughs> sees that something's decomposing five little green men <laughs> hop out take the thing and rush it off the lab and there's endless amounts of money to preserve everything but sometimes you have to play you know it's, detective sometimes if you search for something let's see how could this have been misspelled or misfiled and you find things it's not just film like anybody who does any kind of a cataloging work it's just a, a data entry error or something like that so that's how it became age short so we now had the extra material for Find the King. We found the second half of Real Two of Behind the Counter. And then everybody convinced me the sequence with all the nitrate decomp in the, in, in the first half of Call Again. It's just one section of it where you just can't see anything. But the rest of the film was passable. And uh, Ben Solovey of, of uh, Origins Archival, who did our digital restoration, really was able to iron out some of the decomp so it wasn't so uh, difficult to look at. So now we have the other three. We had money for me to score them, to, for us to produce them, to have the digital restoration done on it. And that's how it expanded into a two-disc set of eight shorts. So the reviews, both uh, professional and uh, and personal, have been have been great on the, the Horton set. It's gotten a great reaction. Oh. And you uh, finally uh, got to show them, some of them, with uh, an audience yeah, it was. It, yeah, it was. It was. It was great. The films look great. They're really well produced because they were produced by Harold Lloyd. Uh, Suzanne Lloyd has has been is thrilled that they're available. She's she's known about them and and know, knew they were good and has wanted people to get to see them. And and so we programmed Dad's Choice, which is really that's like Charlie Chase and Limousine Love. It's at that level. Mm-hmm. It was shown at a Capital Fest, and the audience reaction was out of this world mm-hmm. and and the same thing when we showed find the king scrambled weddings and da- uh, dad's choice at the afi silver what was really exciting for me was we started the program with find the king which i told the audience you are the first movie theater audience since 1928 to see this picture and i'd live with these things in a vacuum 
I knew it was funny, but you don't know where the laughs are. There were more laughs than I mm. thought. And just hearing an audience laugh at something, yeah, it was just really heartening. And it's really been exciting, the enthusiasm that people have had for the films, the discovery of something that you realize you haven't heard of it because you haven't heard of it, not because it's lousy. Right. We should mention you know, for the podcast yeah. the, uh, the Lloyd connection in that the films were produced by Harold Lloyd's company Harold Lloyd. with many of his staff. The same people. Yeah. And yeah, under the name Hollywood Productions, I did a show in Albany at the, at the, the Linda, WAMC's uh, Performing Arts Studio, and we showed The Kid Brother. And I remember having this weird flashback while I'm playing. I'm watching the opening titles, and it's the same people mm-hmm. and the same artwork as in the Edward Everett Hort. Walter Lundin is on camera. J.A. Howe is directing. T.J. Kreiser. And the, the lettering and the people, I might as well have been looking at the credits from one of the Horton shorts. I mean, it's made the same year. For, for our for younger listeners, you know, who, a lot of us uh, believe that independent film uh, was uh, invented in the 1970s. Oh. Most... Silent comedies were produced as independent film. There are very few studios doing that. And what Harold Lloyd is doing is saying, I want to keep these people around and I need a reason to pay them a salary. I said, I don't want them to lose lose them because they've got to go off and take another job and feed their families. So in order to keep them together, let's make some things because I'm not ready for another feature, whether it's I don't have an idea or just I don't want to make too many features. I think he was somebody who was yeah. very aware of avoiding overexposure and worked very long time in his films. And most of them, they would spend a year on a feature. And if you look at the the places where they there are studio comedies, such as Reginald Denny, they thought nothing of three, four, five films in a year. Sure. Yeah, because you could crank them out and they were six reels and that was it. By Universal. Right, and and Harold Lloyd had been making two pictures a year up through 1926, and 1927 it's just Kid Brother, the next year it's just Speedy, and then the big project that that Welcome Danger became in in, in 1929, so he, he wanted to keep everybody busy. So the Edward Everett Horton shorts are a delight, they're really funny, they're really well made. And his persona is the—he's the same guy as we all know from Top Hat and Here Comes Mr. Jordan and everything else. It's just you don't hear him; you see him running well, around a little bit more. You can and hear him in your mind. It's like watching a W.C. Field silent movie. Yeah, <laughs> you can fill it and, in. And, <laughs> and he had that—he had that persona already worked out on stage when he made these comedy shorts. And and some of the title cards read like dialogue that you hear—you would imagine him mm-hmm. saying. I want you to stay here for the night. Sorry, I can't do it. Oh, but you must, old man, really. You see, at the moment, I'm having a sort of a problem with my ballot. Oh. Well, um, what do you want me to do? Press your pants? Oh, no, no. You couldn't. You wouldn't know how. No, you don't understand. It's my man, Bates. We've had a bit of a tip. Oh, how terrible. You, you, you didn't come to blows or anything? Nothing like that. We're not speaking to each other. We've had rather a clash of, of taste. You see, Bates insists that a square tie is the only possible tie that can be worn with evening clothes. <laughs> a square tie, imagine. <laughs> I prefer the butterfly. It was really the overwhelming support from fans. A typical Kickstarter for me is 320, 360 backers. We had over 550. Fantastic. And, um, and also there's a lesson to take away. 
fans is that, you know, even after the Kickstarter has reached its goal, there's good reasons to keep contributing, not only that you're yeah. going to get the product, but that the product keeps getting better and better. Yeah, if, if there's more things to expand to, like we did with the Alice Howell set, that went over its budget and it turned out there were a couple more shorts that we wanted to add, and so that got, got added onto the project. So sometimes that's possible. Let's hear a bit of that performance of Harold Lloyd's film, The Kid Brother at the Linda, the performing arts studio of public radio station WAMC in Albany, New York. This is recorded by the Linda's staff with excellent room ambience, and it is from a scene early in the film when Harold is churning butter and then chasing a wayward shirt which has escaped a laundry line. That was a few minutes of Ben Modell's score to the Kid Brother as improvised on November 4th, 2021 at the Linda, WAMC's Performing Arts Studio. So another big project for you in 2021 is uh, you did a lot of writing, some ideas oh, that you, yeah. you felt you wanted to get down before they escaped yeah. your mind. And so there was a real flurry of blogging yeah, I, I embarked in January on a project to blog on a regular basis, which is something else I've been trying to do, and I've been getting better at it over the last couple of years, just to sit down, write something, and post it. It doesn't have to be 
Hemingway or, <laughs> or, or Benchley, but the act of showing up, writing something, sharing something, not in a diary or reporting on shows I'd done kind of way, but something I, I wanted to get out. And one thing I'm really uh, interested in, and which is the basis of the course I teach at Wesleyan, is what I call the language of silent film, but just the storytelling language and what the components are. The class I teach watches the development of it from the early teens through the end of the silent film era, where gradually more and more of it's left to the audience to assemble in their head. But what I wanted to write about, and it wound up being 65 or something like that posts over the course of most of 2021, was just to put it out there and say, this is what silent film is, this is what silent film is not. This is what is not silent film. Because the, the phrase gets bandied about a lot and is not always understood correctly. A lot of what people think of silent film is based on spoofs from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Recently, for some anniversary of Monsters, Inc., the folks at Pixar thought, oh, you know, it would be funny. Let's put out a four-minute cartoon that looks like a silent movie cartoon of Monsters, Inc., and it looked like these people had never seen a silent film before. <laughs> they added the dust and the scratches and the flicker, and the title cards had those frilly borders. And thanks to Tommy Staff, there's so much silent animation available on disc. You would think that animators uh, would have looked at a handful of these things to get an idea of what they looked like to try to be authentic. And maybe the whole idea was, let's not be authentic. Let's just do what we think a silent movie looks like. So I embarked on this project to post blogs one at a time about different facets of what I believe silent film is, what it is, and, and most importantly, why it still works. Why is it that these movies from 100 years ago, there are teenagers, little kids, all the way up to people in their 90s who love these things, who enjoy them, who discover them, and still like them, even though culturally they're from another era, generations ago. Yeah, and they're not no longer propelled by nostalgia, which was the guiding principle no. when I was first coming across them and I was a tweener in the mid-60s and my grandparents saw, and even my father, my father could remember seeing the general in the movie theater. Yeah. So there was a big nostalgia, but that's all gone. Nostalgia is not right. part. But we have a historical bad habit. When I would teach American history, we tend to look on the American colonial period as simply a prelude to the creation of the American Republic, as if that mm -hmm. was inevitable, that was the only thing that was going to happen, and anything that happened in the colonial period has no value unless it yeah. has to do with the creation of the Republic. So therefore, yeah. we look at silent film as some kind of incomplete half-step towards real film, which begins right. with color and sound, and now film is right. complete. Up to then, it was just but, sort of, you know, it was kind of disabled film that you had to right. make excuses for. And not instead of right. saying, it's no, this is a form. This is its own It's a form. separate medium. It's a separate medium entirely. Mm -hmm. It's a completely a separate, it's a separate medium. It's not broken this is what film. <laughs> it's just the unfortunate title that it's been given makes it sound like you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> my, one of my analogies is like, silent film is like, yeah, we're going to go to a bar, but it's in a library. Oh. <laughs> oh, movies. Oh, silent. Oh, I have to hold my breath. No, no, no. It's just... They hadn't figured out how to do sync sound. There's no way around it. P people have always trying to, well, what else can we call it? And I have come to call it classic film with live accompaniment. I don't want to say silent because people will run like in the Casper the Friendly Ghost cartoon. <laughs> um, 
what it is about silent film that still works is that it's a right brain experience. Mm -hmm. Your right brain is much more involved. And this is the thing that I talk about in my class and we show examples and discuss and that I cover in these blog posts is about what gets left out and the different ways it gets left out. And then also, once you establish what that universe is in terms of, okay, we don't have to give you, we can just give you suggestions of things and just give you little bits of this. Plus, you have the speed up, which is absolutely part of the language. It's absolutely part of the form you, where it allows you this latitude and this freedom to create something in terms of story or gag or elisions of time that's much more poetic where you can create gags that don't exist in reality. You can dispense with traditional linear narrative. So you have films like Sunrise and the Crowd at the end where there's slice of life movies, but yet because we're involved, we are involved, and as soon as sound comes in, we are less involved. And it's that involvement, you're usually not aware of it. It's a, a friend of mine has said that watching a silent film, especially in a theater with live music, it's like you're in a trance. And as soon as the movie's over, you've come out of a trance. I think that's a big part of what it is. So I was trying to get it out of my mm -hmm. head onto paper. And the thing that came out of it is that people at the toward the end, as I was wrapping up, would post comments asking if this would become a book. It's a thought. I don't know that if there is a, any writings on just why does this work? Why does it still work? Why does this work anywhere on the planet? I mean, I've had this experience when I went to South Korea and I played for Steamboat Bill Jr. and the freshman in front of 3,000 South Koreans in Jechen outdoors and the laughs were exactly the same. Not only the, the, here's a punchline and they laugh, but the kinds of laughs, the build. I had played for Steamboat Bill Jr. several times that year already and it was absolutely identical. So this is what the universal language part of silent film so will this become a book? I have a lot of work. I printed it all out. It's a mess. Uh, it needs a chiropractic adjustment. But I think that this will be a project for 2022 is putting together whatever I wind up calling this and self-publishing it. We'll see. But this is something that won't, won't be finished till the end of next year. The Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and the unexpected in classic film. Although her skills and talents have been overshadowed by the details of her personal life, Marion Davies was one of the best light comedians of the silent era. As with Roscoe Arbuckle, it's high time to redirect our focus to her film persona and her acting, not her life. Beauty's Worth tells the story of a high-spirited girl longing to break free of her Quaker family and enter society. At first, she is humiliated by the snobbish group, but she turns the tables on them, and at last, her choice between two suitors leads to an understanding of her true values and her own Beauty's Worth. The film boasts designs by the famous Joseph Urban, as well as beautiful vistas of the California coast. To be clear, this is not the blurry, unaccompanied print you can find on YouTube. It is made from a digital scan of a 35mm print from the Library of Congress with a brand new stereo score for theater organ by Ben Modell. DVD Talk writes, Marion Davies gives a solid performance in this light romantic comedy. The newly composed score fits the film well, and the print used to make the DVD is really outstanding for a film from 1922. This gets a strong recommendation. Beauty's Worth is presented in association with Ed LaRusso. 
and with the cooperation of the Library of Congress. The Region Free DVD is available at Amazon, Deep Discount, the TCM Shop, Critics' Choice, and at any vendor of classic film entertainment. Since we talked about uh, 2022, why don't we just keep on that track? I know okay. that Undercrank has a couple of things in the chamber, yeah. not Kickstarters, but you've got product that's nearly ready for release yeah. in 2022. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about them. I can't, I don't have a street date set and I don't like to give a month and then have to backpedal for eight months. But I know that something that'll be out at the beginning of the year, Marion Davies and Xander the Great. We're still finishing up work on that, but we have the DVD box. I have to do some work on the score that I had already recorded for Ed LaRusso's Kickstarter. We have worked using the nitrate, Marion's own nitrate print, to use as a guide for the tinting colors. But we went back to a preservation negative made in the 80s that had less nitrate decomposition on it, gotten that graded. And so that'll be out in the first quarter of 2022. I'm also in touch with John Marsalis about some things that he has scored that were shown during Cinecon that got a good reaction. And we're working on finding a way to package that and put that out at some point in the first quarter of next year. And there's talk about uh, more early Lon Chaney, but it's still too early to talk about that. I have a, a handful of other projects that are in motion, in development, uh, which I can't talk about right now. But I, I'm at a point where I, I have to say, oh, wait a second, you've said yes to too many things. <laughs> or, okay, that's the cap, or I have to find somebody else to do this. Oh, we're, we're working with Kathy Fuller-Seely from the UT Austin, uh, restoring The Craving, a Francis Ford feature from an element preserved by the iFilm Museum, getting it cleaned up, stabilized, and titles translated to English. But none of this would really be moving forward if it wasn't for Crystal Kite who's the associate producer on my DVD project. She approached me a couple of years ago about wanting to help out. And I'm spinning so many plates, not only with, with DVD and Blu-ray production, but on top of shows and live streams. She's been a great help and great organizer. The video essay on the Edward Everett Horton set, which everybody keeps talking about. Yes, uh, Steve Massa wrote it and he narrates it, but this was her project. She wanted to do that. And what I love about it is that it eliminates the need for a booklet mm -hmm. and reading glasses to read the booklet and a microscope to read the <laughs> <laughs> and then the nine ten minute video essay that was something she wanted to do and that's something we'll probably do for some of the other projects like uh, andrew simpson's project he kickstarted that that funded went over the funding goal uh, a film called uh, back pay which is an early frank borzaghi film which he directed it was written by francis marion and the reason again speaking of somebody named marion the reason it exists it was produced by cosmopolitan productions and marion davies she made sure she had a print of everything that cosmopolitan uh, produced pretty much whether she was in it or not and there's a lot of stuff at the library of congress that's from the marion davies collection whether on nitrate or preserved to 35 uh, safety that's from her collection. And you don't think of Marion Davies as a film conservationist. Some of the prints are from the 20s, like Xander the Great is a, is a show print. The nitrate print is a show print from 1925. Some of the, the Marion Davies silent films from the early 20s are prints that were struck in 1934, 35. So maybe she had There's them printed, but still nitrate. she's an important... Yeah, still nitrate, but uh, I think that she's an unsung hero of, of film preservation in that way, in, in the way that a lot of stars... They made their films, and that was it. But maybe it's because, I, I don't know if 
Mr. Hurst paid for them or whatever it was, but she did seem to have prints of everything. We'll find out, I'm sure, Laura Gabrielle Fowler's exhaustive biography of Marion Davies that'll be coming out next year will answer a lot of questions about that. And that's just something I'm looking forward to. As much as I only released one DVD in 2021 and I did zero Kickstarters because I couldn't handle mm-hmm. it. I don't know about you. I don't know about anybody listening. But 2021, it was it was just a difficult year to stay focused on things. And I think we all not only took longer to finish things, but we all cut everyone a little more slack because we were all just going through it. So as few releases as there were for me in 2021, I am expecting an uptick next year as long as I can stay on target and don't get swallowed up in, in scoring projects, what other- which is also had an uptick. What other uh, things are we hoping for in 2022? Well, we're hoping for a, a, a mostly lost. Yes. Yeah. As, as long as everything with vaccines and health and the pandemic move in a positive direction and positive enough direction that uh, the Library of Congress can resume at some point in-person screenings that there will be a mostly lost. We're all going to hold our breath and see and wait and see what happens with that. The Silent Clowns film series, we are still waiting on a checkered flag being waved by the New York Public Library at large since that branch is part of the public library. And public gatherings uh, have not been okayed for any of the branches just yet. Like all art cinemas, it's all case by case. A film forum has been open with no masks. MoMA has been open, but with masks, and you have to show proof of vaccination. I don't know what they're doing at the Museum of the Moving Image. It's case by case. The other thing is that there are a handful of places that I have started playing that I had never played before. Epsilon Spires up in Brattleboro. I will undoubtedly be back there. Same thing for the Linda up in Albany. I will be playing in Rawway at some point next year. I know that there's an initiative with the Garden State Theater Organ Society that's being spearheaded by Bernie Anderson to do some more silent film events in general than they usually have. So I'll be back at Rawway at some point. There are places like Amherst Cinema and the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston who I've done live streams for where once uh, it's safe for them to do in-person things again and fly me out there or whatever, uh, I may be going out to to those places. But I'm curious to see how the virtual silent movie theater (laughs) progresses in, in 2022. The name I've come up with for it temporarily is a silent cine stream. I'll see if that's catchy or not. So you're, that's project to be clear that you, where you're branching away from comedy and uh, getting into repertoire. Yeah, the the PD classics, the, the things I've been live streaming with other art house cinemas where they've ceased do, doing offering that, and I think that in addition to what I'll undoubtedly continue doing with the Cinema Arts Center to continue doing silent film features or other programming that's outside of what the Silent Comedy Watch Party is, doing something once a month and once every two months on a weeknight and starting at a time that's palatable for East and West Coast. Mm -hmm. I think if I started a show at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time, it might work out for everybody. Not so good for England and Australia, but (laughs) at least in the U.S., And I can tell you that Steve and I will be presenting a program of Edward Everett Horton comedies for the Slapstick Festival in Bristol, uh, UK, virtually, as we did with, I think we did Laurel Orhardy last January. And there will be some information about other things coming up in New York City in in the, the beginning of 2022 that we'll tell everybody about on the next episode.
Speaking of in-person appearances, let's hear some of Ben's improvised score for The Cat and the Canary from October 12th in Syracuse at the New York State Fairgrounds on a Wurlitzer organ. This excerpt begins, if you know the film, right after the clock chimes at midnight for the reading of the will. a few minutes from Ben Modell's score for Cat and Canary improvised on October 12th on the Syracuse Wurlitzer. You recently finished a series that was in memory and honor of Eileen Bowser, and I wondered if you wanted to say something about her. Yeah, that's ongoing right now. It's organized by Ron Magliozzi. And uh, in January of 2021, I think, we had Ron on as a guest on the Silent Comedy Watch Party. And anybody who wants to know more about Eileen Bowser, go to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash silentfilmmusic. And if you just search for Eileen Bowser or Ron Magliozzi, you'll find that show. Eileen Bowser was the head of the film archive in the 70s and 80s, which is different being, from being the head of the whole department, but had been with the department for at least a decade or so prior to that. A great deal of silent film was preserved during the time she was the head of the archive. She made a major, major project of repatriating American silent film where copies existed only in foreign archives. 
Uh, so the cruel and unusual comedy series that Steve and I and Ron Magliozzi, and then again in other iterations with Charles Silver and Dave Kerr have done were meant as showcases for the slapstick comedy shorts that she preserved. That was a big, that was one of her favorite subjects. She was a mentor to Steve going back to the mid 80s when he attended the slapstick symposium that she put together. And she came to screenings throughout the 2000s when Steve and I were watching MoMA's Holding on silent film and would answer questions and or just tell us stuff about the films we didn't, it's not written down anywhere. Mm -hmm. But to get to review the films with the woman who helped preserve it, just meant a lot. This is something I tell my last day of class at Wesleyan. My closing curtain speech is I give advice to my students that has nothing to do with the language of silent film or, or anything like that. And, and one of the things that I have, at least for me, has been very fruitful throughout my life going back to my writing a letter to Walter Kerr when I was 12 is that if you find somebody a generation or two older than you involved with what you're interested in, embrace them and hang on to them and ask them questions. They're probably happy to share what they know with you. They're probably waiting for somebody to ask them. And they've already done what you're interested in doing for 40, 50 years. They've already done it. Maybe the technology has changed. Maybe the culture has changed. But they've already done it. There's a lot of stuff and a lot of wisdom and experience that they've, they've gotten out of it. So just getting to know Eileen and being able to ask her questions about certain things at one of the programs that we did for the Cruel and Unusual Comedy series that she introduced, she said, film preservation isn't completed until it's shown to an audience. And a lot of the films that we showed had not been shown to an audience. So for me and Steve and Ron and Dave Kerr to complete the preservation work by showing the films and to an audience. And let me add, so much we to have us. a live score because it really to have, makes yeah. a difference. Uh, I collect home video like so many people do, and it's it's great to be able to do that, to be out on a whim, say I want to see that, but it is no replacement for the film really being performed. It's not being performed unless yeah. it's being live scored in some way. No, it's, it's absolutely, and whether it's in person or on a live stream, if you listen to the podcast and you have not been to the the silent comedy watch party or any of the live streams sign up for my emails and come to one of these things if you buy a ticket you know mark your calendar don't don't come on facebook the next thing oh i missed it definitely check it out just knowing as you do in an in-person show that somewhere out of the corner of your brain that there is a person somewhere on planet earth as if they were in the room with you creating a score just yeah, for look you at what you're looking there at you're looking at and they're reacting in real time as you're reacting. And it's, yeah, it's an organic yeah. experience. Yeah, and I feel very connected. Even though I can't see anybody, I think of the other person mm -hmm. sitting in their home, whether it's that there's a family who, f I remember writing to me at the beginning of the, the watch party, we started doing it. We live in a farmhouse in Ireland. We have no access to this. So I think of people like that. There's a young woman in, in Kanazawa, Japan, who gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning <laughs> on Monday to watch us live, never misses Fantastic. a show. There's so many people. So I, I think if you're a, a viewer of the watch party or any of the streams, I think of you when I'm playing, even though you're not, I can't see you. Let me use the opportunity before we sign off. I know Steve has his recommendations, and I just stumbled up across a few things that I would love to share. One is a film okay. which has been shown recently on TCM. I think it was completed in 2018, but it was just distributed on TCM and on home video this year. It's called Cartoon Carnival, and it's a really nice 
90-minute summary history of silent film animation. And the ingenious thing about it is it is structured through the eyes and experience of Tommy Stathis, the leading collector and preserver and restorer of that form. And so it's really kind of a film about Tommy, kind of a film about the films. It really does cover that material. You know, anybody who teaches film could buy a copy in the 90 minutes. It really doesn't, nothing covers that subject better. It's really a very nice package. The other thing, and I think you mentioned this somewhere in the social media, Ben, is uh, the latest issue of The Lost Laugh is out. It's a it's a magazine out of the UK. It's a digital magazine. It's absolutely yeah. extraordinary. It's packed. This issue is uh, over 50 pages. There's a page about uh, Edward Everett Horton. There's yes, that's a right. nice article in the Demi Clowns, which includes Douglas McLean and Johnny Hines, yeah. both of whom have undercrank releases. It's yeah. just packed with content, and it's free. So Google the lost laugh, not the last laugh, but the lost laugh. Lost laugh. And you, and when you Google the lost laugh, you may wind up in a, a, with a, a YouTube uh, listing for a film called The Lost Laugh, which is a Wallace Lupino ah. short that was lost until I found <laughs> it. So his site and his magazine is named after that that comic. That's, that's a wonderful small yeah. world. And the last is, yeah. as, uh, as you know, Ben, I have moved from the New York City area to the uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. And I'm really excited because in April, the Maryland Symphony Orchestra, which plays in Hagerstown, is going to be live accompanying comedies by the Giants. I don't know. They haven't given the titles, but they say Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd. So I'm going to be going up to Hagerstown because I've heard, you know, I've heard Ben play and I've heard other keyboardists and some small ensembles, four or five people, uh, the Alloy and things like that, but uh, I have not heard yet heard a symphony, so I'm super oh. excited about that. Oh yeah, no, that that's a that's a completely different experience, mm-hmm. and and someday we'll talk about my my playing the piano in Celeste part for City yes. Lights in Norway. Been, if I haven't already covered no, that, no, you've which promised a heck that of an story. Well, we'll, we'll oh get my to God, it next yeah. Year. But yeah, so but if you ever get a chance to see a silent film with an or- orchestra, go. Well, that's our that's our show. This has been episode 43 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. Part 2 of our two-part series, wrapping up 2021. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent movies. I'm your I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, and presenter, and I'm here as I am every time my co-host and co-producer, Kerr Lockhart. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for, for editing all of this down to a palatable length. We want to thank you so much for, for listening to the podcast, for supporting the podcast, for supporting any of the live stream shows that I've done, the DVD releases, and really for supporting Silent Film in any way you have throughout 2021. It's been a challenging and crazy year. We're not out of the woods with all of this yet, and we look forward to whatever 2022 brings us. Um, We hope you stay safe, stay healthy, stay well, and have a good holiday season and a good New Year's. 